I'm Rebecca Lavoy, and this is You Can't Make This Up. You Can't Make This Up is the podcast where we uncover the true stories behind your favorite Netflix documentaries and films. On today's episode, we take a closer look at the Netflix documentary series, Encounters. Maybe people don't want to know what this phenomena is. Maybe people don't want to know the truth. Maybe it scares them a little bit somehow. Today, we're talking to executive producer and director Jan Motzkin. It's common folklore, a sole witness to a mysterious flying object whose tale of their encounter is met with skepticism. But what if dozens, if not hundreds of people say they all saw something in the sky at the same time? A town in Texas, a village in Wales, school children in Zimbabwe, or survivors of a nuclear disaster in Japan. The Netflix series Encounters goes beyond the reported incidents of unidentified aerial phenomena or extraterrestrial contact. Why would groups of unconnected people claim to see the same oddities? And how has telling their stories affected their lives? Through interviews with witnesses and experts, Encounters explores whether their sightings were shaped by superstition and pop culture, or whether they truly witnessed something out of this world. Nothing I am saying is anything new. It's just a matter of, are you going to believe it or not? And I'm joined by executive producer Jan Motzkin. Welcome to You Can't Make This Up, Jan. Thanks for having me. So your series deals with mass sightings and other kinds of encounters with unexplained origins, potentially extraterrestrial in nature. So this is really different from other films you've done that deal with crime and swindles. How did you get involved with this subject matter? Funny you should ask. Uh, so I have a relationship with Netflix. I've made uh, documentaries. Uh, before that, I had uh, done a lot of scripted and fiction, and I still do. And then the three companies that are involved with this, Amblin, Boardwalk, and Vice. So I know all of those companies from before. And in some weird cosmic little rift, each of them called me separately and independently and said, hey, we have this project uh, about UFOs. Would you like to consider it? We'd like you to do it. And I, I said, thank you very much, but I'm not an alien person. <laughs> I've never done anything related to aliens. I don't watch alien documentaries. I don't really even watch sci-fi. I've seen the big sci-fi stuff, but I'm not really this person. And they said, that's exactly why we want you, because you're not an alien person. Um, so I sort of politely passed. And then a little while later, Amblin and Boardwalk and Vice and Netflix came back to me and they asked me to reconsider. And I said, well, I'd be interested in doing this if we can take a character-driven human narrative perspective. Can we tell stories about not so much the aliens or the UFOs or whatever may or may not be out there, but the people that were impacted by these encounters? Uh, and can we explore that? And can we explore the drama of that and the psychology and the pop culture and the sociology and the history and all of that? And if we could do it like that and do it like a story rather than sort of an informational doc, I'd be much more interested. And they said, you know, to my surprise, because I thought they were going to say no, they said, yeah, let's do that. Yeah, it's very not sensational, right? I mean, you don't have 
the typical, you know, <laughs> I don't want to say like fog <laughs> and, and, you know, things on wires and, you know, the uh, suspenseful music. I mean, it really is a, um, I mean, there's a lot of trauma in this. People really talk about their stories and, and their memories and, um, and and belief systems outside of, of what they saw. And that's, that was important to you to include. Very much so. And that's a really good point. And that was one of our starting points, which is none of us were interested in conspiracy. Uh, We weren't interested in sensationalism. We weren't interested in necessarily or exclusively like the military angle, because I hadn't seen a lot of those. I hadn't seen much, if at all of those, you know, other projects that you're talking about. But I do know that there's sort of this ethos around alien docs, that it's all conspiracy and it's all you know, what secrets is everyone hiding? And so we approached it from a starting point of belief, Mm. which is that we're interested in telling uh, human stories about the people firsthand that experienced this, whatever they experienced it. And we believe that they believe. Um, Now, that requires a lot of unpacking and finding the right people and doing our homework. But that was our perspective. And belief, wonder, uh, and also science, you know, because... That's sort of part of that. That became part of our um, mission, which is there's yesterday's story. There's today's story, which we've all sort of seen. But as we began researching, we understood that there's a, a, a different new kind of story emerging in this field. And that's tomorrow's story. And that's centered around belief and wonder and science. Um, and it's global and it's diverse. Mm. It's not the American centric, military centric, um, conspiracy centric uh, narrative that we've seen before. Now, unless you're trying to do some sort of enterprise around your UFO story, there's not a lot of reason to come forward, right? And I'm wondering where um, in these stories, when there's a lot of people coming forward about the same encounter, is there sort of a safety in numbers aspect that gives these particular people, um, you know, more incentive or more safety around, around coming forward? Because, you know, as I said, like, why come forward otherwise? Uh, that's a really good question. It's actually something that we struggled with. So I, I'd say two things to that. One is you mentioned many people and part of the construction of our project was we were interested in mass sightings rather than a sighting or an encounter that may maybe one or two people had in their backyard. So we were, as part of our research, we spent about half a year looking at mass sightings around the world in the last 30 or 40 years. And, you know, we didn't put a number on mass, but we wanted the number to feel like we wanted the witnesses to feel like it's very difficult to explain that away. If hundreds of people saw the exact same thing at the exact same time. So I think if any in our research and story selection process, if any any encounter had less than a few dozen witnesses, we immediately weren't interested in telling that story for corroboration reasons. Um, Your second point is actually probably the the central challenge to this project, which is nobody that we talked to really wanted to come forward. Nobody had incentive. In fact, they were disincentivized. You know, some of them were, um, had gone through stigma. Some of them were shamed. Some of them had lost jobs. Some of them had lost, you know, failed marriages, failed relationships. They've lost money. And a number of them were traumatized, you know, like akin to, uh, you know, sort of other injustices that we've experienced. And that was I was very surprised that that was the case. I didn't, I didn't, I thought it would be easier for people to come and 
tell their story. And I was shocked by how difficult it was to convince what we believed were credible people to speak to us on camera and to tell their story. Because as you said, a good number of them were reliving trauma. Hmm. So can you talk about the impact of that New York Times expose and those congressional hearings on the way this entire topic is viewed and, and, and maybe on people's willingness to talk about it? I mean, that article in the New York Times changed everything. Everybody generally in this world and outside of this references that article, that publication, that time as sort of the before and after time. And for whatever reason, you know, being on the front page of the New York Times, whatever you think of the paper, legitimized the subject to a certain degree. We accompanied the story with videos, Navy videos, which had not been seen until then publicly. These were among the most watched videos ever put out by the New York Times. And, you know, I, I don't, I'm not saying this, other people are saying this, but it sort of made the subject uh, more accessible to the mainstream media and people were more comfortable reporting about it. And while people are still today uncomfortable or maybe not completely uh, open about talking about their experiences or their belief in the subject or um, the subject in general, there's definitely more of an acceptance where people feel like this is a thing and there's a lot of people that are studying it, talking about it, uh, putting money behind inquiry. So it's slightly more okay to talk about it post-2017 than pre-2017. Of course, it also gave the public a new name for these phenomenon, UAPs, Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon, instead of UFOs, which was sort of like what we call them in pop culture and sort of like definitely associated with alien life, I think, more so than UAPs, which sounds, I think, a little bit more of like a clinical term. It could be anything. It could be, you know, very earthly in origin. Um, so let's just talk about the first of these four cases, which you look at, which takes place in Texas. It's over a series of days and spans several small towns, um, notably in the Stephenville region. What did people see there? So 2008, Stephenville, Texas, which is in Erath County, uh, central Texas. It's sm very small. It's rural. It's uh, the dairy capital of the world, uh, not far from uh, George W. Bush's compound. One night, hundreds of people saw what they say were lights in the sky. And by lights in the sky, they mean numerous lights that were in a pattern that they couldn't, that didn't seem, quote, normal to them. Then all of a sudden, I see some real bright, high-intensity lights off to the east, headed our way at a high velocity of speed. The lights was so bright, it was unlike anything I'd ever seen. It was almost blinding to look at them. And what amazed me is there was no wind noise, no engine noise, it was silence. Now, we ended up going there, and in, in our story, we focus on uh, five or six of these people uh, of the hundreds that saw it. And those people saw more. So a few people saw what they call a flying, what some of them call a flying Dorito, which is, you know, a, a big triangle uh, with three lights on the corners of it. Um, and a handful, and a number of people saw that. Um, people saw it over the football stadium. Uh, people saw it in town, people saw it out in the rural areas, and almost everyone describes the same thing over the same night. And then they saw it again a few weeks later. And so that was important to us to build this sense of corroboration, which is number one, we find credible people. So the bank president, 
um, the local constable, which is like a sheriff, an elected position, uh, the high school math teacher, uh, the principal of the school, you know, pillars of the community who have something to lose by coming forward, who have no incentive for being involved or for publicly talking about the subject and people who are not involved in these sorts of things. And they all said that they saw the same thing, lights in the sky and these black, large black triangles that made no sound. So we hear from the local newspaper editor that she thought the UFO headline was going to ruin her career, but it created a lot of buzz. Can you talk about that, that small town reaction to that media story? Yeah, it's great. It's like then you couldn't write a plot twist like that. So this is <laughs> this is like this is Sarah Vandenberg, who's lovely. And she's, you know, from out of town and she comes into town and she gets her first job. And it's a big job. She's the managing editor of the Stephenville Empire Tribune, which you know, if you take a quick look at that, you'll see that it's Stephenville E.T. And, <laughs> you know, she's responsible. She's she's a journalist. And suddenly, you know, she has a reporter uh, who is saying we have all these people that are saying that they saw lights in the sky and, quote, spaceships. And she says, we can't print this. I'm going to lose my job. I'm going to lose my credibility. We can't do it. And the story kind of got away from her and she was really upset and she fought back really hard. But it's sort of the story overtook her and she was overridden by the publisher and the newspaper sold more copies than it, I think it's ever sold before by a magnitude of 10. And, you know, eventually she came around and in the story, there's a nice little twist where she really came around at the end and she came to not just accept it, but to also experience it firsthand herself. I can tell that you're um, a filmmaker who enjoys like a bit of metaphor. I mean, it wasn't lost on me that the high school teacher was doing a lesson on Don Quixote. <laughs> I mean, there is something fitting in that sort of in this like search for something, looking for answers, right? And yeah. I thought that was great that you included that detail. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, look, Don Quixote obviously has been referenced in many, many films and literature. And so I'm not the first or the last person, but this was her favorite lesson. And she said, I'd like to, you know, I'd like you to film my, me teaching it to my kids. And then the connection with the windmills and Don Quixote and Steve Allen, who is the pilot and the businessman, uh, where he saw his sighting. I mean, we, we didn't even, when we got there, there was a downed windmill on the ground that he was walking around and, and that sort of unintended coincidence and or synchronicity. I don't even know what to make of it. You know, if you're <laughs> if, if you're a conspiracy theorist, you'll start looking at it and saying, well, it was planted. And if you don't believe the study or, or if you're on the opposite side and you believe in these cosmic coincidences, you'll say, ah, see, that's a sign to us. It was just that works as filmmaking. So let's make sure to include it in the film. <laughs> Now, one of the cases that I was thrilled to see that you covered in your series is this famous case of this sighting at this elementary school at Zimbabwe in the 90s. Um, all the witnesses, for the most part, are children. Can you please talk about this case a little bit? What did they see? So the case in Zimbabwe might be the most, might be the best known, and it might be the most interesting and extraordinary case of the last century. 1994, in a town called Rua, just outside of the capital city of Harare in Zimbabwe, there's a school called the Aerial School. And at recess, 10 o'clock, 10 a.m. on a Tuesday morning, uh, 62 kids were playing and they saw three spaceships within 100 yards of their school. They're all seeing it. 
And then a handful of them uh, saw what they described as beings emerge from the craft. The being would have been... no further than this far away where you can see details. And it was a bright sunny day, so there was definitely no mistaking what we were looking at. And a handful of these, a uh, handful of the former students describe these beings being within two meters of them. They got freaked out, panicked. They got, the, the schoolyard went into a, a panic and chaos. Everyone ran into the school. And then that's sort of where our story begins because, you know, the, how did the teachers react? How do their parents react? The media descends on the school and it becomes a sort of bellwether for belief. It becomes a bellwether for so many things. It becomes a bellwether for belief. What is the difference between you know, our kids' perspectives biased or unbiased? Um, is this sort of a case of mob mentality? Was somebody making it up? Was one of the kids making it up and all the kids just jumped on it? Why did the adults believe them or not believe them? Uh, why did the teachers not believe them when we find out that at least two of the teachers, including the headmaster, uh, the, the now headmaster, who was then a teacher, had the same experience? It becomes a question of the media treating them and mistreating them. And these former students, of which there are 62, but we talked to, you know, about a dozen, they're living with this thing now. This is, what, 30 years later? Yeah. Um, it's impacted their lives in profound ways, some positive and some negative. It's really incredible to me, the messages they say they heard. These kids were young. Uh, they talk about the, the vocabulary that they heard from these beings and what they were repeating to the adults. Um, there's one student who says he made up the story, but classmates still insist it happened. Um, do you have any kind of theory as to what might be going on there? Well, it's funny you ask that. So there's one, st so we talked to... Of the 62, we probably talked to off camera 25, 30 of them, of which six of them are on screen. They're characters in our story. He, his name is Dallin. He told us in our very first conversation that he made the whole thing up. And he's the only person that we talked to that said that. And we weren't sure what to think. So we filmed with him and he told us the story where he goes out into the playground. He was out there in the playground. He was a middle school. I can't remember first, second grade. And he says that he he wanted to get out of class. He called Shauna class, which is the local language. He was a bad student at Shauna. So he wanted to get out of the class. So he made up a story and he said, at the time, I can't see it now, but at the time there was a was a rock, a very, very shiny rock and you know, shining in the sun. And, uh, you know, so I pointed at him like, look, yeah, there's, there's a spaceship, there's an alien. And the grade one's, grade two's like, oh, really? I'm like, yeah, 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 aliens. And within half an hour, all the kids were talking about it. All the kids were running around. Um, the whole school was buzzing. He now, so 30 years later, still stands by that he made the story up. We asked him, why did he make it up? And he said, just because he wanted to get out of class. You know, why did he not say anything earlier to anybody? I don't know. Um, why did he stick with his story? Uh, but he claims that everyone else is lying and that mm. he's the only one telling the truth. He was probably the one character out of this whole series. And we filmed for about 50 days around the world with roughly, you know, 50 to 75 people. He was the one person who, after we filmed with him, after we interviewed him and spent a day with him, that I said to my producers and my creative team, I said, I don't believe him. Mm. And I don't have anything, I don't have any evidence on that, but I just, 
you know, as a filmmaker, I just, something about him, I just didn't believe. And so I said, we're not going to put him in the film because he doesn't seem credible to me. And it was really important for us to feel credible. And we started the edit and we had this, one of our editors, Greg O'Toole, who's a fantastic editor. He looked at the footage and the very first thing he said was, we're going to start with Dallin and we're going to use him and we're going to use him as a, someone to play off of, because then now we can talk about this idea of belief. And I disagreed with him, but we did it. And I'm happy. I'm happy to say I was wrong and Greg was right. And so I should end that story a little bit better. <laughs> no, no, I, I actually think it's really important. I mean, it, it really contrasts with, um, you know, Emma's story because she talks about, you know, being afraid, not being believed as a child would make people not believe her as an adult about other things that happened to her. And it really underscores, you know, how important belief is. I mean, you you have this Harvard professor named John Mack, who's fascinated by the psychology of people who've seen unexplained phenomena. He's very sympathetic to these patients. He becomes kind of an outcast in the academic community. Um, you know, Again, with belief, you know, do do you think does he believe in UFOs or does he believe in documenting the real effects of people who believe of real people who've had these experiences? I mean, there, there's just a lot of layers there, right? I mean, he's an extraordinary human being. He's so he's dead now, um, but he was a Harvard psychiatrist. He founded the Harvard, uh, the psychiatric hospital at Harvard Medical School. He was not interested in necessarily aliens. He was a psychiatrist and he had done a lot of work with children, uh, both adults and children, but a lot of work with children. He came to this because he was interested in, he had started, he was turned on to the subject before the Zimbabwe story and of people who had said that they were abducted, um, of people who had these extraterrestrial encounters or in, encounters that they could not explain or experiences that they could not explain. And as a psychiatrist, he, and he says this on camera in archive um, and in his writing, he couldn't find any reason to not believe them. You know, they weren't, um, they weren't motivated by anything. They were, there wasn't any mental illness. Uh, they weren't under the influence of anything. It wasn't any kind of, you know, mental issue. Um, and so he could not find any reason why they were not telling the truth. So he believed that they were telling the truth. He didn't say that what actually happened was real or not, uh, but he believed that they believed. And so I took that sort of as my North Star for making the film, which is that I can't sit here, Rebecca, and tell you that, you know, three spaceships landed in Rua, Zimbabwe in 1984 in the playground of the aerial school. But I can tell you that I believe that Emma and Liesel and Salma and uh, Tapfu and Kutsanai and all the other kids that day believe what they saw and that they saw something. So you take us to Wales, where another group of students witnessed what they believed to be a spaceship and an alien. And when asked to draw what they saw, they all draw, draw a flying saucer that looks like a flying saucer from television show, <laughs> um, Forbidden Planet. Does this illustrate the problem with looking for evidence of UFOs when UFOs are so thoroughly steeped in our pop culture? Yes, <laughs> Next question. <laughs> no, I mean, you, it, it brings up a lot of interesting things. And so in each of the stories and episodes, we wanted to explore a different aspect of this. Obviously, each of these stories deals with a lot of aspects and there's some crossover, but we tried to find stories where we can really tease out something. And in Wales, I love the idea of pop culture because, you know, there's a journalist in that story, PhD and journalist, his name is David Clark. And he says a line like, there's nobody on planet Earth who doesn't know what a UFO looks like. 
And that's probably true. Why? Because at this point in our media consuming lives, or, you know, we've all seen all the movies, um, many of them are great and made by my bosses at Amblin and Steven Spielberg um, and many others. Um, so we all have this image of, you know, from Doctor Who, from Forbidden Planet, from Close Encounters of the Third Kind, from E.T., of, you know, whether it's a silver shaped flying saucer, whether it's, you know, black eyes, whatever the image that somebody has from the comic book or the TV show or the movie that they've seen, we have it. Now, that isn't to say that, oh, they saw the film, so they, they just imagined it. But if you're steeped in sort of like the films and pop culture of the time, all those things that are in your head become part of it. So the question becomes, does somebody who, somebody who sees something in the sky that they can't explain, are they seeing what they already have seen in the past and they're just projecting that? Or are we seeing something in the sky and then taking that as inspiration and creating the art and whether it's Close Encounters or making a comic book? You know, what comes first, the vision or uh, the pop culture? And then it becomes this sort of feedback loop on itself. And it's also like songs and music videos. Um, and so I thought that that was a great story to explore this idea of pop culture and media, also partly because it's kids and kids like love movies and kids love comic books and kids have, you know, fantastic imaginations. But also kids, on the other hand, are unbiased and, you know, for the most part, they're pure and they don't really have a reason to lie. You know, as we get older, we become more jaded. And also that story took place in 1977, which, you know, if you're a, a fan of cinema, was a banner year. It's the year that Close Encounters came out. It's the year that Star Wars came out. It was at the height of, you know, Doctor Who. It was a big year for sci-fi and, and UFOs and aliens. And so for all those reasons, it was it was a really, really special and incredible story for us. I think it's arguable that, you know, since Barney and Betty Hill um, in the mid 20th century in New Hampshire, the alien, the gray alien with the big black eyes, because they were the first to ever say that they saw one, is one of the greatest pieces of human lore and, you know, spoken mythology really in the history of humankind, don't you think? Totally. And, and lore and mythology is a great thing to talk about because... And we do it in Wales, how, you know, not just pop culture, right? Not just how does pop culture influence what we see or how do we make it into pop culture, but how does local lore and mythology, uh, folklore come into it? And Jacques Vallée, who is a sort of well, very well-respected thinker and computer scientist, and he was the basis for Steven Spielberg's character of um, In Close Encounters of the Third Kind, who was played yes, by the French Francois, scientist, the French yes. scientist, France, played by Francois Truffaut. Um, but Jacques Vallée talks about mythology. And so if you look back like before pop culture and all of that, and we do this in Wales, where we explore Celtic and Welsh uh, folklore, and we talk about fairies, and there is a mythology of fairies not being sort of these Tinkerbell type characters, but fairies being evil and sinister and living in the sea. And so in Wales, what happened was some people saw these ships in the sky, but then some people saw them go into the sea and come out of the sea. And that starts to get wrapped up with the Celtic and Welsh folklore, which is there are these fairies and they live in the sea and they come in and come out. How much of what people saw is influenced by the folklore or how much is the folklore influence what people saw or, or, or does what people saw sort of create and push forward the for folklore? Um, and every right. country has that, right? Like, you go to Zimbabwe, they have their folklore. You, we come to America, we have our own kind of mythology. Yes. And then we sometimes put the modern UFO mythology, uh, we kind of 
um, overimpose that, superimpose that over stories that are from biblical days. Like Ezekiel saw the wheel. Some people are like, no, that was definitely a UFO. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's very, very interesting how, how the human brain fills in those gaps. We need to talk about Fukushima. Uh, we, we go to Japan in your, in your fourth installment where more than 400 people reported seeing lights over the Fukushima power plant. This time there's video of lights moving in all directions. What's extraordinary is that we as viewers are placed in the same situation as the people from all those previous stories. We have to make sense of what we're seeing. Um, is that why I included the video? Do you think the video is thought provoking in that way, like challenging the viewer to have us fill in the gaps for ourselves? Well, we included the video because everyone wants evidence and yeah. we can't not include, you know, maybe the best evidence that we had. Uh, Texas has pretty good evidence, but we included it just because it's on one hand incredible to look at, as you say. Um, on the other hand, it's, you know, if nothing will ever be conclusive enough. And I think that's what we learned, you know, no matter what I or anybody else shows as evidence, I don't think we're in a place today where anyone will say, oh, okay, now I believe. But that evidence was pretty incredible. And, and another reason why we chose to tell a story in Japan is because I'm not sure that there's ever been a documentary or, or a story about UFOs or aliens that's set in Japan or in Asia for that matter. And so diversity, was really important and not in a political way, but we wanted to tell tomorrow's story. And tomorrow's story means not just in America, it's global. So we wanted to tell a story in America. We wanted to find a great story in Europe. Could we tell a story in Africa, which is Zimbabwe? And then we want, we found the story in Japan. And another reason why Japan was really, uh, there's so many reasons why Japan is interesting. Another reason is, is because it's connected to the nuclear power. And there's a yes. long history, well, not that long, but you know, 70, 80 years of the history of of sightings and you know, increased sightings and increased activity around nuclear power plants, nuclear power, nuclear weapons. I mean, it goes back to when, for me, split the atom sort of in the 30s, and then it really, really ramps up. And you, there's actually like I've seen statistical data of an increase in sightings in and around any nuclear power plant. And so we wanted to explore a story with uh, sightings uh, and encounters around nuclear power. The other yeah. thing that was super was the perspective of the Japanese uh, people and culture, um, which was completely opposite what sort of myself and we as Americans think of when we, the reaction that we have to UFOs, you know, ours is one of aggression and uh, it's a threat. And how can we, how can we marshal our military? And, you know, what do they want from us in conspiracy? Whereas in Japan, um, it's partly spiritual, it's partly natural, sort of mixed with supernatural, but most importantly, it's positive and it's sort of one of healing and balance. And basically they're saying they're here to help. A lot of it is about achieving or restoring balance, that life, modern life is out of harmony. And the benevolent view is that aliens, whatever you want to call them, are coming in or are concerned and are trying to restore a sense of balance to the world. The reason why they're here now is because like we may or may not destroy ourselves with these nuclear weapons. So like, let's just see what's going on here and make sure it doesn't go south.
So there's a commonality in cases in which after many people witness a UFO, there's, you know, sometimes a person who says they're later visited by aliens at night. Um, you know, sometimes it's somebody who missed the initial sighting. Sometimes it's not. But um, of course, these are hard to prove. And I'm wondering, you know, what is it about these? Sometimes it's like, does the person feel like there's something special about them potentially to these visitors. I there's something there that I just I can I can't quite wrap my mind around. What do you think about these kinds of beliefs? I mean, that's hard. I think I think I'm not a psychologist and I'm not a medical professional, so I'm not going to pretend to know or understand. But I can say that in this experience, I spoke to many people who were abducted, said they were abducted by something non-human. Um, they've never gone public. Uh, they don't want to go public. They don't appear in our show. They have no interest and their lives have been ruined. They speak with sincerity. They speak with specificity. Uh, and so all I can say is that I believe that they've experienced something. Is it a dream? I don't know. Is it some kind of regressed memory from childhood that's based on a human experience that they've had? I don't know. Maybe. Is it, um, are they being, uh, you know, taken by another non-human being? Maybe. I don't know. Um, but I believe that they believe the people that I've spoken to, um, the people that I don't believe. Um, mm. There's one person in the Texas episode who he's a Navy intelligence cryptologist. Um, he's been vetted. He's in the military. He's in the Navy. He's a codebreaker. He's a credible person. And he told us an incredible story. I knew that it wasn't ours. Right. I knew that it wasn't anybody else's. So, I mean, that only leaves one other option, I think. Which is what? And that's non-human tech. In fact, he told me a story off camera that was even more incredible. And I chose not to include all of it in the film because, not because I didn't believe it, because I actually, because I do. I didn't because I wanted to make sure that audiences would believe him. And I felt that, I don't know how to say this. I felt that if, you know, if you, if you cross a certain line with an audience, that might impact how they look at sort of the belief of everything. And right. so I sort of chose to draw a line, but that has nothing to do with whether I believe him or not, because I do. So in all this exploration, you talk to people with, you know, this range of beliefs, you know, you have someone who studies the Bible every day, wonder if, you know, what he saw was actually angels, a person in Wales, you know, as you talked about, brought up this idea of local lore, trickster fairies, you know, another belief was that, you know, the lights over Fukushima were the souls of the dead. What I found interesting, um, and I'm wondering about this, if, if you experience this, you know, are there people that could believe in one phenomenon, but not the other? In other words, you know, I believe in fairies, but not UFOs, or I believe in UFOs, but not in angels, if that makes sense. Sure. I think, I think that's very possible. I think we all have sort of our stuff right? Like we all come from somewhere. So we all have a community and a culture. We all have a, a religion or we don't have a religion. Uh, we all have our own mythology, right? And so I think we use whatever is available to us and what's exposed to us that helps us um, not just get through the day, but helps us figure out who we are. So if I'm a religious person um, and I believe in God and I believe in certain stories from the Bible, why do I do that? It helps me in certain ways. I'm not a religious person, but if I am, I think that's why I do it. But I know religious people. If I'm a scientist, I believe in empirical evidence because that's the way I've been trained. 
And I think it's actually, it's a good question. Why do people believe? And Diana Pasulka, who's a professor of religion and was really helped us a lot in framing our thinking. She wrote a book called The, the um, American Cosmic, which is great. But she, she asks in the film, she says a line to the effect of, you know, people have believed in various religious things over thousands of years with no evidence. And yet here with UFOs, we're presented with a little bit of evidence, some evidence, and we don't believe this. So why do we believe that unbelievable thing, but we don't believe this unbelievable thing? And I found that to be a very good question. And I think it comes down to personal choice. And also, which I'm realizing is what our film is about or our, our series is about, is um, experience. You know, most people won't believe something unless they've experienced it or have seen it firsthand. You know, one of your interviewees talks about that. Um, you know, this change that happened to him after this experience was you know, somewhat for the positive, it was somebody in Wales who talked about how, you know, now he's open to like all the possibilities in the world. Um, what about you? After talking to all these people, are you open to more possibilities in the world? Oh my God, so much more. I went into this project as a, not even a non-believer. I just didn't even think about it. You know, I'm just focused <laughs> on like waking up, brushing my teeth, you know, being with my wife, getting my kids off to school, you know, like most of us are, right? Just sort of getting through the day, our jobs, our lives our friendships. And then suddenly you experience something like this, which is completely sort of you know, shakes the underpinning you know, of, of everything that we believe life in the world to be. And it forces us to look up from our phones, look up from the ground and pause and think about what is out there. And then, you know, that's the first question. But then you know, once you start thinking about that, you think about, OK, if there's something out there, how does this impact us? How does it impact our physics? How does it impact the air we breathe? How does it impact, like, are we going to go to Mars? You know, it, it just it changes everything. And so I definitely think about this a lot more now. Um, I'm more I'd like to think of myself as open minded, um, but I'm probably a little bit more open minded now. Well, Jan Motzkin, you made a UFO series unlike any I've seen before. That's for sure. Thank you so much for talking to me about encounters. And thanks for showing up for You Can't Make This Up. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Rebecca. It was very nice. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to Jan Motzkin. For more of my takes, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. Each week on that show, we break down the latest in true crime documentaries, films, podcasts, and pop culture. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please rate and review this show and share it with your friends. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Music, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. And make sure to follow the show to stay tuned for all new episodes. Our music is by Kelly Mack at Netflix Music Lab. You Can't Make This Up as a production of Netflix. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening. Listening.